It's philosophy talk. Fiction is obliged to stick to possibility. Truth isn't. Remember that nice boy next door, Raskolnikov? Yeah. He killed two ladies. No, what a nasty story. Plato, Hume, and Barclay intentionally wrote fiction. Most other philosophers do so unintentionally. Bobek told it to me. He heard it from one of the Karamazov brothers. Oh, he must have been possessed. Well, he was a raw youth. Raw youth? He was an idiot. Tolstoy, Dickens, Walker, Percy, Shaw, Moliere, novelist, and philosopher. I hear he was a gambler. You know, he could be your double. Really? How novel. Don't philosophy and fiction both aim at universal truths about human existence? Our guest is Rebecca Goldstein, author of 36 Arguments for the Existence of God. Philosophy in Fiction, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, philosophy in fiction. Well, Ken, some famous and some not-so-famous pieces of philosophy are, strictly speaking, fiction. By famous, I mean, for example, the dialogues of Plato or the dialogues of Hume or Barclay or Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Even Rousseau's Emile has some novel-like elements. Among the less famous, of course, are my own dialogues. But who knows, in a couple of centuries... Yeah, you know. I'm, I'm sure they'll be right up there with uh, Plato and Hume, John. Just just wait wait a little bit. But tell me, in your own writing, why, why would you choose to use a fictional motif? I mean, philosophy is about seeking the truth. Well... My dialogues have three characters, which gives me three voices to play with, three positions I can get wrapped up in, and, and each can present as their own point of view, and that's hard to do in the normal way of writing philosophy. But my, fiction, my dialogues and the others I mentioned are pretty marginal, perhaps even lame, cases of fiction. There's not much plot and very limited character development. With all due respect to the philosophical dialogue writers, they're all great philosophers, but I think something like Moby Dick is a more interesting example of philosophy in fiction. The, think of the three main characters, Starbucks, Stubb, and Flask. They represent, or seem to represent, Platonism, Epicureanism, and Stoicism. And the philosophies are developed not just in what they say, but in what they do. And the novel as a whole explores in a very gripping way what gives a life meaning. It's a very powerful philosophical novel. It's clearly a novel, and it's written not by a hack philosopher, but by a great novelist. Yeah, the mates were Starbucks, Stubb, and Flask. It seems like Starbucks should have called themselves Stubbs. I mean, Epicurean coffee sounds more promising than Platonistic coffee. Okay, John. Well, yeah, that's, you know, okay. But I suspect they made the right choice, nevertheless. But be that as it may, do, do you think that philosophical truths, or, or any kind of truths for that matter, can actually be conveyed better in fiction than in straightforward prose of the sort that most philosophers favor? Well, I mean, an important part of fiction is to get across what it's like to be a certain kind of person. A good novelist or playwright can get you into the fictional person's way of thinking and feeling and reasoning and deciding. I, ha I have no doubt that certain truths at least can be more effectively conveyed in this way than in any other. But further, can, are there certain truths that can only be conveyed in this way? I mean, how, how could that be? Do you think that could be? 
Well, let's think about another example. Think about that moment in Huckleberry Finn when Huck agonizes because his conscience tells him he should turn Jim in. But some deeper grasp of humanity prevents him from doing so. There's a philosophical lesson there. The, the novel's a superb way of getting it across. But is it the only way? Well, I doubt it, frankly. Well, I, I don't like to think that much about Huckleberry Finn, the boat to tell you the truth. But, but let, let, let make a case for what, what I'm, I'm thinking about. I mean, you can tell someone what it's like to feel pain or hear a trumpet play. But arguably, there's another way of knowing what pain or, or a trumpet blast is like that comes only with the experience of actually feeling pain or hearing a trumpet blare. Maybe what a gifted novelist can do is something like that. Maybe she can get us to vividly imagine being this way or that, being a theist or, or an atheist, a, a courageous person or a coward, a, a woman in a man's world. We can imagine things that otherwise, unless we happen to be one of those creatures, we wouldn't have any access to. Maybe, 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 like Tom Nagel says, we, we can't know what it's like to be a bat, but maybe a gifted novelist could almost get us to imagine what it's like to be a bat. Be a bat. <laughs> but, of course, uh, you know, a good novelist can also convey falsehoods. I mean, teenagers read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and get a completely distorted idea of what it's like to be creative, at least in my humble opinion. Well, and since you're being so uncharacteristically humble today, John, why don't we uh, get some help? We have perhaps today's most gifted philosophical novelist as our guest today. That would be Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, author of the brilliant new novel, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. And we want some help from our brilliant listeners, too. Join in by calling 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, we're going to hear from our roving philosophical reporter. She's found some San Francisco area teachers who are opening students' mind to philosophy by use of good stories. Jill Repligal files this report. We read Siddhartha, um, Life of Pi, Picture of Dorian Gray, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, a short story. I personally liked Life of Pi the most. I really got into The Death of Ivan Ilyich. It was really relatable to kind of the lives we live, especially in this community where there's a lot of stress on uh, defining how successful you are, and that's kind of what the book is about. These are students at Palo Alto High School. They recently finished Lucy Philpoo's junior-level humanities class. We were reading Life of Pi right around when we were discussing reality, and we discussed Descartes and what is reality, and if there is no reality. Because everything could be a figment of your imagination, and the majority of the plot of Life of Pi is that, and you really only find out at the end that the story was really almost sort of a metaphor of what actually happened. So just spend a few minutes. I'm passing out Sophie's World today. Um, Philpoo uses literature to engage students with philosophical questions, like Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, the story of a man willing to sell his soul to keep his good looks. It's one of the students' favorites. And of course, they're all gorgeous and young, <laughs> and, and yet so aware of the culture in which we celebrate youth, and it brings up lots of questions of why and at what cost, and what does that do to... Um, greater sense of goodness and ethics. Philpu says high school students are natural philosophers. I think a 16 or 17 year old is the richest, most uh, exciting philosopher out there. These kids have left the kind of crowd mentality that rules early adolescence. They're, they're really making abstract connections and forming sense of self beyond the cliches that unfortunately drag them down. So existentialism is a perfect fit. They absolutely loved Kierkegaard. 
Just down the street at Menlo School, Jack Bowen uses his own novel to introduce students to philosophy. It's called The Dreamweaver, One Boy's Journey Through the Landscape of Reality, a novel about an eighth grader named Ian. So instead of teaching or talking at the reader, Ian's living these ideas. So he runs into all the problems that God runs into in the philosophy of religion, or he doesn't have free will and then he gets it. In the margins, readers get a synopsis of the philosophical underpinnings behind each plot twist. For example, Ian invents a universe. In the side, you see Thomas Aquinas's five proofs of God's existence, very briefly stated. But now the readers can see, oh, this is what Aquinas was saying. That's pretty basic and simple. I just lived it with Ian. Now I can read it sort of factually on the side. And the hope is that the combination of those two allows the reader to sort of own what Aquinas was saying, and then hopefully push further themselves. High school teacher Bowen says the hardest philosophical question to get through to his students is one of the most basic. What do I know? Could it be the chance that the, that the skeptics had it right and we're not certain of anything and we don't have knowledge? Let's at least be open to what that means and, and play that game. And that's the trickiest part I see with my students is they're saying, but wait, we know all kinds of things. I mean, I quote Yoda, who's another fictional character, says you must unlearn everything that you have learned. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Jill Replogle. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.